Hey friends, I'm Stacy. And I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and our review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspires curiosity well after the story is finished. So now, let's get on with our episode. You joined us today for the Curious Reader Podcast. This is our second full-length episode, and today we are discussing Charming as a Verb, the young adult book by Ben Philippe. Well, I'll be giving a quick summary of the book and some of my thoughts. What do you have in store for our listeners, Melissa? Hi, Stacey. There is so much to discuss here, and I've provided some resources in a padlet about these subjects, and that will be included in the notes of our podcast Some of the things that came up are the New York City class system, uh, Manhattan, New York culture, cost of living, New York City private schools, language barriers, debate societies, shoe design, fashion, dog walking, girls who (laughs) walk around with keys for protection we were just talking about, (laughs) and even firefighting. But three topics really stood out to me as I read through the book. And these are three things that are personally meaningful to me. And that's one thing that is important about research. When you make a connection and you're thinking critically about the world around you, it helps to engage your curiosity. It makes things more interesting and meaningful. So the three topics that I decided to focus on are immigration, stress and students, and food. I agree. There were so many topics to discuss in this book, but your top two choices are very prominent issues in our society, communities, and among our teens. And then food. Well, you can never go wrong talking about food. So if you have not read the book and are wondering how immigration, student stress, particularly about college, and food all fit in, let me give you a quick summary. Henry is a Haitian-American teenager, hungry for the American dream, a hunger that brought his parents to America for a better life. Henry attends a prestigious New York City private school called Fate. Henry has a smile that charms everyone, including his wealthy classmates and the wealthy clients whose dogs he walks. And behind that charming smile, Henry is abundantly aware that he does not have the same opportunities as those around him. Henry is not wealthy. His dad is actually the caretaker or facilities manager of the building they live in. And Henry's mom just made a career change. She is now a firefighter in training. He studies hard. He's involved in the mandatory extracurricular activities. For him, it's debate team. He runs a dog-walking business that really isn't a business, just a name he hides behind to woo his wealthy clients. And all of this is to further his acceptance into his dream school. Well, most definitely his parents' dream school, Columbia. Henry's interview at Columbia is lackluster, and now the fear of not getting in permeates his thoughts. And on top of it, a fellow classmate, Corinne Troy, who also happens to live in his building, connects the dots to uncover his less-than-truthful dog-walking day job. Stacy, I can really identify with the support character, Corinne. She's his upstairs neighbor, a wealthy girl with different worries than Henry. She wants to be popular, and she blackmails Henry to help her learn how to become better at socializing. 
She's been called intense, and she's been told she needs to lighten up and improve her recommendation letter to school because people were very critical of how intense she was. So I like the play throughout the book of Ms. Perfect versus Mr. Charming. (laughs) I think that's a great description of them. And that blackmail deal brings them together, and eventually a real connection blooms. Unfortunately, Henry succumbs to the enormous pressure building around him. And he does something so terrible that jeopardizes everything, including one of the most real relationships he has. I think we can really all identify with doing something wrong and needing to fix it. Maybe not something so terrible that it jeopardizes everything, uh, but we all have those feelings of, oh no, I really messed up this time. Exactly. I can look back and remember making some choices that I shake my head at now. But growth and awareness came from those mistakes, and I think that's true for Henry. This was a great story about being true to yourself and rising above preconceived notions and labels that others put on you, but as well that you also put on yourself. So that was a general summary. And here's what I really um, liked about the book, what appealed to me. First off, there's some heavy issues in the story, but it was definitely very funny. Both Henry and Corinne have some awesome dialogue and one-liners. I mean, the kind that um, make you laugh so hard that you're snorting a little bit. And I had several of those moments. Um, One of my favorite lines, and I I was going to say it, but I think I'm going to like totally ruin it, so I, I won't say it. But there's tons of awesome lines in here. And then there's um, another thing. Ming, this is Henry's best friend. Um, He sings Daniel Powder's Bad Day. And honestly, as that was happening in the story, I wanted to jump off my couch and sing along with him. The downside, though, it took me days to get that song out of my head. Actually, I was still singing it yesterday as I wrote it in here. So second, I adored the writing style. The first-person narrative brilliantly allows the reader to viscerally experience Henry's thoughts. I also felt like a co-conspirator in his dog-walking scheme. Um, The writing was so conversational that I felt like I was walking alongside him, and he was training me, showing me the ropes. Honestly, all the characters were so likable, all their flaws and all. So, Melissa, did you have a character you particularly liked? I did really like Corinne. Um because she seemed like me in many ways. Um, And you said that all the characters were likable, but there were times where I really didn't like Henry, where I couldn't understand. And I would be like, stop, stop, don't do it. (laughs) But one one of the interesting things about this book, I think, is that boys and girls could like it. Um, I think that Henry was very boy-ish, and Corinne was a stereotypical girl in some ways. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a good assessment. I think that this is a book that could be liked by, um, by everybody, really. So I think I could talk for days about all the things I loved about this book, but we have other points to get to. So I'm just going to end with this. Throughout the book, Henry um, title drops a bunch of literature that he is reading or he um, often makes references to a book that relates to his situation or a plotline or a character. And while waiting for his interview at Columbia, he states he opens his library copy of Catcher in the Rye. Well, recently, the school library journal had an article about how far young adult fiction has blossomed and reflects on the myriad of life experiences for a more diversified teen experience. The short of it is that the article referenced how newer young adult fiction titles are strong substitutes for some of the classics that are notoriously found on the classroom syllabus. And ironically, charming as a verb was a great substitute for Catcher in the Rye. 
And I think the article even mentioned how newer titles offer vigorous discussion. And I think that's a great segue into Melissa's three key subjects from this book. So take it away, Melissa. Thanks, Stacey. Um, It's funny. This is one of the books, the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, Sometimes when you read realistic fiction, you are like, okay, it's a little slow and but it it gives you topics that are so deep that you keep that I keep coming back to. So the three topics that struck me right off the bat, I'm just going to repeat from the beginning. So they were uh, immigration, and then stress from applying to college, and finally food. So Henry comes from an immigrant family. My mother is actually an immigrant, and my grandparents were refugees from Europe. Immigration is a hugely important topic for our country, and I wanted to present some facts about immigration to give readers some context when they are reading about Henry, whose parents came from Haiti. So immigration helped form this country. We think of the United States as a melting pot and New York in particular. It is a state with one of the highest percentages of immigrants. And most of the information I'm going to give you now, and I'm going to try to go through it quickly because this isn't a podcast about immigration, but um, most of this information comes from the census.gov site. Okay. So in 1790, we started with our first immigration laws. In 1790, we had the Naturalization Act, where basically it said only white people could become citizens. In 1870, it was almost 100 years later, people of color could then become citizens. In 1882, that's when the ball really started rolling with citizenship. The United States instituted a series of exclusionary acts that tried to keep out Chinese immigrants, or did keep out Chinese immigrants, ex-convicts, prostitutes, and idiots, in quote, that's what they called them. They were all barred from gaining citizenship in the United States. In 1891, the Office of Immigration was established, and in 1892, Ellis Island was opened. 1917, they had a literacy test for immigrants. 1921, they had an emergency quota act. For the first time, it established quotas. Their goal was to keep the main immigrants being from Europe because more people from other countries were starting to come. And they really wanted to focus on European immigration. So they set this, I don't know how they came up with this arbitrary number, but 3% of the total population uh, of foreign-born of each nationality in the United States, as recorded in the 1910 census, was allowed in. And then in 1924, they had a new act and said, that's too many people, we're going to reduce it to 2%. So they were really trying to keep people out of the country. Yeah. Uh, It wasn't until 1965 when we established the Immigrant and Nationality Act, which repealed the nation origins quota, and they replaced it with a preference system based on immigrants' family relationships. And that's what we have now. So if you have families in this country, it's more easy to come into the States. And we see that with uh, Henry's uncle here. Henry's uncle, I think he comes in later, right? Because his brother's here. I think that is correct, yes. Yeah, so 1965 really eased things. Um, And then we started having things like uh, 1980, we opened it up to more refugees. Uh, 1986, we granted amnesty to people who were already here, and that relates to DACA. I don't think people know that the acts that have in the past few years, past 10 years, that have let people who were born here stay in the country, that actually has origins earlier. Oh, I didn't realize that either. 
So the first data was collected by the Census Bureau based on country of origin in 1850. And if you look at immigration, people in 1960 were mostly coming from Europe. But Henry himself is part of a later movement. Um, in 2010, when we look at the census, most people came from Latin America. 53% when we're looking at this census. Wow. So I want people to really stop, um, especially you teens out there, stop and consider why do people leave their homelands? So this past year, there have been um, many young adult books written about immigration. And authors are working hard at writing authentically about the immigrant experience. A good example of another book is We Are Not From Here by Jenny Torres Sanchez. The book tells the story of three teens making their way from their violence-torn town in Guatemala to Mexico with the hopes of eventually making it to the U.S. for a better life. Now, a better life has been a key phrase mentioned by Henry often when he talked about his family. So we're going to focus more on Haiti because that's, that's the country that Henry's from, which I've said. Um, Haiti has had continual political instability and foreign occupation, including by the United States, for pretty much all of its history. They've had oppressive leadership. They've had corruption. They have poor infrastructure. They have poor education and health care high unemployment and poverty. They're actually one of the most impoverished countries in the world. Um, And then an earthquake in 2010, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, um, but our readers might want to go back and, and look up some news about that. Really, really that earthquake hurt the country terribly. Yeah, I remember um, that earthquake in the news. And and I, when I saw your, your notes on this, I, it came to mind. Definitely. Yeah, they're still suffering the effects of that today, still trying to rebuild. So so one of the issues that uh, came up as I was doing my research was how more and more first-generation immigrants like Henry are going to college. Several studies state that Haitian society overall places a high value on education despite having a an educational system that, that struggles. They believe that it leads to success. And when I was reading about this, it made me really think about why Henry's father really wanted him to go to Columbia. Lots of studies are out there now on how immigrants are reaching for higher education degrees. That sentiment was definitely found within the folds of this story. And given the first-person narrative style of writing uh, that I spoke about earlier, We as the reader got to experience how this really affected Henry, in which I think plays into your next topic point, Melissa. Exactly. So topic number two is applying for college, which I think everybody out there can relate to, and the stress associated with it. I actually have a senior in high school right now who's going through this. So Henry was dealing with a lot of stress. Much of it came from the context of his family situation as Haitian immigrants who valued education and were trying to better their lives. He felt that pressure everywhere he turned. Yeah, the pressure he was under came across right at the beginning of the book. Uh, Even with his interview with Columbia University, he lets us inside his head. He talks about the college essays, the recommendation letters, SAT scores. And while he sent his out to other schools, Columbia was the only one he cared about. The beacon of possibility, the ticket to a better life for me and my family, is what Henry actually says. And... This part really popped out to me. On page 49, Henry says, It's established knowledge that all the effort you put into being the perfect college applicant should in turn also look effortless. 
be perfect, and make it look easy. And that's the charm that Henry is showing others. But the real Henry has the pressure of those around him. He sees his classmates that have more connections, more influence, super brain power, more money. And with that comes second chances for them. So if their first path doesn't work out, but Henry perceives this is his only chance. He only has one path. And that is a big problem. And I spoke with Goffstown High School psychologist Sheehan Gendron to get some information about how to help teens deal with this kind of stress. She emphasized that she helps students recognize that change is the only constant. It's important to have a growth mindset. And there's a lot of literature out there about growth mindset. That's the in thing these days. Um, let's share a clip now of Ms. Gendron explaining how life is not just pretty little boxes. And that's the term she used. I really like that image. So I think, I mean, it's important to you know remember that change is the only constant. I think I go back to that time and time and time again when I'm working with kids. Um, isn't that, you know, and flex, so that leads to needing to be flexible um, and have a flexible mindset. Um, the, there's a lot of, um, research and development in having a growth mindset right now, which is the opposite of a fixed mindset, which would be that I need to get into this school and follow this career because that's where, who makes the most money or that's what my parents do, or that's what grandma says I need to do. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways if we have a flex mindset to maybe get to that place, if that is your end goal, which doesn't necessarily mean Columbia, like the book's example is, right, or um, Harvard or anything like that. It could mean starting somewhere small that fits you better, a uh, community college to test the waters, Um and so again, going back to being flexible, having growth mindset versus fixed mindset, which just means that there's different ways of doing things. And we have to step back from that black and white thinking to be able to get there. We don't all fit in pretty little boxes with pretty little bows. Um, society would like us to, our brains would actually like us to, because that's the way we like to categorize information is you, that goes here and this goes there. Um, our brains don't like gray area. Um, and that's really what exists the most is gray area. And that, that gray area can be really uncomfortable to sit in. Um, and it's a really important place for us to be because that's where growth happens. That's where change happens. That's where we can really discover who we are and what we want. For more information on how to talk to yourself to reduce stress and promote growth mindset, Shan recommends the Big Life Journal website, which we will link to in our episode notes. As I mentioned before, while much of the pressure comes from ourselves, Sometimes other people put us in boxes, like Henry's father. Sheehan addresses that, and I want to share a clip here. What happens when someone is trying to put you in that box that you talked about, say mm -hmm. a parent? Yeah. How, does this, how should a student deal with that? Yeah, I think it's going to start with communication because being put in that box can be very frustrating um, and frustration can lead to all kinds of things. And, you know, we aren't our emotions and what we feel is important and what we do with those emotions 
emotions is even more important. Um, you know, so it's okay to feel mad that you're being labeled or put into a box. It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel stuck. Um, what we can't do with those emotions though is lash out. Um, so I think that it starts with communication. Um, you know, and if that means you need to write down how you're feeling first and script it, that can be a great first step because then you're not kind of in the moment, um, in the moment, you know, saying something that you don't mean or saying something that could be hurtful. So instead scripting it ahead of time, Hey, mom and dad, I want to talk, even scheduling a talk um, so that you can go into it calm and cool and collected, not after a stressful day um, at school or a stressful moment at work or, you know, coming up and you're feeling your bucket feeling too full and you just kind of word vomit it all out. Um, So sometimes script, scripting things and preparing for that by having, having a scheduled time. I really need to have a serious talk with you guys. Can we do it on Saturday? What about just writing a letter? Yeah. This is smart. Is that a good idea? Yeah. I think writing a letter can sometimes be a great way to open the door to communication. Um, and it's a great way to, you know, you can edit. Um, one of my, um, favorite, authors is Brene Brown. Um, and she talks a lot about, you know, a crappy first draft, um, which is, you know, writing something down that's really important for you to get out and for you to say. And, you know, when we're there in front of us, we might be like, Ooh, ew, that's not exactly how I wanted it to come out. So we have the opportunity to then edit it and get it out in the right way, the articulate way, the meaningful way. I think Sheehan's thoughts here speak directly to Henry's situation. If he were able to talk to his parents, he might have avoided some of these problems. So I asked Sheehan about how to choose a college, and she had some great ideas for that. She said, I said to her that Henry was perhaps looking at Columbia for the wrong reasons, and I questioned her about the factors students should consider when seeking a school, and I think she offers us some good advice here. I mean, I think you're going to want somewhere that's going to meet your needs. Um, And I think that there are different needs that need to be met because you're really going to be committing a lot of your time, a lot of your, you know, physical, emotional, mental time to this place. So I think it needs to kind of holistically meet your needs. Um, Are there enough enrichment activities for you? Um, Do they put an emphasis on other areas of health that you can engage in? Um, What, you know, do they have access to mental health and physical health services? Um, Do they have access to fun? What are you going to do for recreation while you're there? Um, Does the school meet your learning style? Um, You know, some, some schools are very hands-on and others are not. And I think knowing your learning style and having your learning style met by your college is going to be important. Um, High school, you know, things are a little bit um, limited in that area because of resources. And then when you move on to college, you have the world kind of opens up for you. So knowing kind of where you want to be and what you want to be doing is going to be important to pick your school too. I think paying attention to our mental health and happiness Mm -hmm. as we pick a school is not something that everyone does. Yeah. I think it's kind of important. Um, How do you know that you will be happy somewhere? Uh, that's a pretty hard one. Uh, I'm going to speak from personal experience. I walked onto campus. Um, I I'm a Colby Sawyer graduate. I knew I wanted a small school cause I came from a small high school. Um, and I, I just felt it in my gut. It was one of those light bulb moments that, you know, this is kind of where I belong. 
So I think if you have that intuition, um, going with that can be important. And again, going through your list of kind of how it's going to meet your needs um, and having that prepared ahead of time, um, asking questions when you're there. What do kids do for fun here? Um, how do you meet your your students' mental health needs? Um, how, do, how, would, how would I get help if I were struggling academically? Or how would I get help if I were struggling emotionally? Asking tough questions to an, you know, an academic advisor at your school can really give you the feel of what you want. And if they don't know the answers to some of those questions, making sure that they do find them out for you and don't just kind of let that slide under the rug. Don't cheat your way in. I was so hopeful that Henry would do the right thing. It was like watching a car crash. I thought about the recent elite cheating scandal as I was reading this book. Cheating is not just limited to a certain kind of person. I think I was shaking my head as I was reading and saying in that kind of creepy slow motion way, no. <laughs> I also thought of the college admission scandal right away, too. And there's an interview that um, Ben Philippe gave um, to the organization We Need Diverse Books.org, and he brings up the scandal as well in that oh, interview. Oh, really? <laughs> That's awesome. So, my third subject is food. And who doesn't like food? I love food. (laughs) Food is such an important part of culture, and the author uses food to help us understand Henry, to make his differences from those around him more clear. So as I was reading this, I was thinking about the foods in my life, Stacey, that are so important. So I think about things like blintzes and pickled herring and potato pancakes and... (laughs) Um, things, my husband doesn't have the same cultural background I do. So he's kind of yuck, yuck, (laughs) 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 but I eat things like, like liver and kidneys and yeah, I bet your foods are different. My foods are different though. Um, yeah, I would probably say no to the liver and kidneys (laughs) as well. Um, so I have, uh, Italian in my uh, heritage. So we, I definitely am all about the, um, tomato sauce and some pasta and but you know my family extended family I have a family that um, is Japanese I have a family that's from Brazil so we bring in those um, foods as well so I think that I just love food and I love all kinds of food and I am willing to pretty much almost try anything yeah, me too. I, I am very adventurous with my eating for sure. At high school, at Goffstown High School, we actually have an ethnic food festival during the holiday season, which unfortunately, obviously, we can't do this year. But we attempt to celebrate our diversity. Um, it makes our differences more apparent um, when we do this, but it's also it also helps bring us together. It's important to recognize and respect differences in others, and food is a great way to do it. I agree. I agree. Food is a great way to share your culture um, because we all like to eat, I think. And we, so I think that that is true. So this book sprinkles food throughout. Um, so the first thing that struck me was on page 30. They talk about Haitian spicy chicken. So they brought home chicken from a takeout place, but it wasn't good enough for them or it wasn't the way they liked it. Yep. So they in they recooked it because heat is not a spice is what <laughs> is what he <laughs> says. Um, they're taking prepared food and re-preparing it to their taste. They also talk about uh, when they go to Montreal to see Corinne's aunt and they talk about aunt 
Terry's baked goods um, and all the yummy uh, breads and cakes that she makes. They explain French-Canadian cooking a little bit and baking to show the difference between where Henry comes from and where he's going. And I think the author does that really pointedly and and on purpose. Um, Columbia, in a way, is a safe choice for Henry, even though it's his reach school. It's where he's from. It's what he knows. McGill in Montreal is different and more daring. It's something foreign. It's a chance for Henry to separate from his family, to make his own way and find himself. And the food aspect of the book really brings that to light. Yes. One of the things Corinne mentions is poutine. As she nervously, when they first get to Montreal, she's telling Henry all about the town. And I had to look this up and it's French fries and cheese curds topped with brown gravy. I say yuck, but this is coming from the girl who eats liver and kidneys. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I say yum. I actually love poutine. And there's a restaurant in Lowell, Massachusetts, and has a rendition with tater tots so instead of the French fries. But I have had places that try to put uh, cheddar, like shredded cheddar. No, that's not it. It needs to be cheese curls. It's cheese curds. Sorry, not cheese curls. Cheese curds, that squeaky kind of cheese. Um, and a rich gravy. Oh, so good. That's what they eat in Wisconsin, right? Those cheese that, curds? Like, yes. Yeah, yep. my husband goes to Wisconsin every summer and explains those to me. And <laughs> yeah, I told you at the beginning that I'd eat anything. But, <laughs> but maybe not poutine. <laughs> So that's not the Montreal that I explored. I visited years ago. Uh, I went to the Polish-Jewish section where my mom is from. Montreal reminds me of the blintzes and pickled herring that I love. Yum. In the book, Aunt Terry serves roasted carrots, mac and cheese, which is the national meal of Canada, actually. <gasps> and will rose- that. <laughs> and rosemary turkey. And I think that's, that's more normal for we Americans. And then... Drum roll, please. Haitian orange cake. <laughs> so, okay, listeners, Melissa and I email throughout the week our curiosities and questions about the books we're featuring. And so about a week ago, Melissa, you said to me that you were going to feature food and you made the point of mentioning the Haitian orange cake. And in my usual fashion, I was still not done with the book. And I was like, Haitian orange cake? Where is that? What is that? When am I going to get to that? <laughs> It's in there, people. Well, you're going to get to it right now, because guess who made Haitian <gasps> orange cake? Woo! Now, I have to warn you. I'm reaching down to get it right now. I have to warn you, I am gluten-free. So this is a gluten-free version, so it's a little denser than normal. That's but okay. But there are lots of great Haitian <laughs> orange cake recipes out there. So this is for you, Stacey. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited. I am unwrapping. Oh, you're going to try it. I'm going to okay. try it right now on the air. It looks delicious. It smells like orange. It's a little denser. I don't care. It's really good. <laughs> it's my so cake. good. Mm-mm-mm. So we'll provide the recipe in the notes, I think. Yeah, I think we should because this is really good. I have the same reaction that Ming has in the book. That's Henry's best friend. Really good. <laughs> so now you have to finish up with your mouth full. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> so this was another great discussion and a thumbs up for a wonderful book. And on that note, if you enjoyed this podcast today, excuse me, I still have food in my throat. Don't forget to let us know by liking us 
And if you're, um, by liking us, if your podcast platform has that as an option. And don't forget to follow the Curious Reader podcast. That way you know when our next episode is available. And you don't want to miss our next book. We are putting down the realistic fiction and moving on to folklore-inspired fantasy fiction with A Song of Race and Ruin by Roseanne A. Brown. So that concludes our podcast today. We would like to leave you some final words from psychologist Sheehan Gendron, who offers advice for dealing with stress. Thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book. I guess my final question is just dealing with stress in general. We're, we're living through a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, and for seniors, it's even, well, and juniors who are taking the SAT, it's even more difficult. So do you have ideas for how students can deal with stress right now? Yeah, I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of self-care. Um, and that starts with liking ourselves first and foremost. And that I know that that takes a lot of work. It's one of those easier said than done steps. Um, And self-care, just taking care of yourself um, and knowing that you deserve to be taken care of um, is a huge first step in that liking yourself piece. Um, The whole, you know, age old saying of like, you you know, when you ride on an airplane, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first before you put the next oxygen person's oxygen mask on, or, you know, filling your own cup before you serve, you know, pour to other people, however you kind of want to metaphorically look at it. It's super, super, super important. So doing things that you enjoy, doing things that are going to rejuvenate you, um, taking a walk, a bubble bath, listening to your favorite music, hanging out with friends, all of those things can be self um, stress relieving and considered self care. Um, And again, that just goes back to you deserve to be taken care of. You deserve to feel good um, and you deserve to like yourself. So if someone is struggling right now, if a Goffstown student is struggling, what do they have to do to come see you or to find someone here who can help them? Yeah. So the school guy, school um, counseling department is an amazing, awesome resource. Um, they're a great front line um, and they can refer to me. Students can self-refer to me. I'm in the special education student services office, conference room C. Um, I can, teachers can refer to me. So if you have a teacher that you're super close with and it feels scary coming to see me as a new person or even coming to your school counselor who you may not know as well, but you have a favored teacher, they can refer to um, me or school counselors. Um, So I think there's lots of avenues to get to us and we're here. We want to help. We care about each and every student here at Goffstown and we're available. So they can pop you an email and it would be anonymous and do you have to tell parents that someone's contacted you? Is that part of? Nope. I get to, I am luckily bound by confidentiality, student, student counselor confidentiality. So I do not need to tell parents unless there's a safety concern. Um, my services are confidential. Okay. Fabulous. I think you gave lots of useful things to think about. Um, I know for my daughter now, I'm going to look at that mental health aspect of her school. I didn't even think of that. So I appreciate that personally, (laughs) Um, but this is great. So I'm going to stop recording and,